The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's budget hangover week. <laughs> Speaking of hangovers, someone on this podcast right now had one on Friday. <laughs> I don't even remember Friday. <laughs> you looked terrible. It was it was awful. I mean, we leave the building Thursday morning, what, quarter to one is what your Snapchat well, said? That was, that was Friday. It was like 1249, I believe. Yeah. Well, Friday morning. Friday morning. We're back in the General Assembly on the Senate side, Friday about 930 in the morning, and uh, it made for a rough day. I actually slept right here at the office. I know. I tried to force you to sleep in my spare bedroom but when you woke up I said should I come down to the office and you said don't come here you're gonna be mad because it's messy (laughs) apparently I took off my suit as I was walking up the stairs to the couch clothes everywhere it it was not a pretty sight Uh. it was like the scene from the hangover where they wake up after taking Rufalin. It was it was <laughs> it was pretty bad. But we survived. Yes. We did survive. Yeah, we recorded the podcast last week before we went back to the building for that final vote on the house side. Anyway, here we are a week later. The dust is settling, the smoke is clearing, the General Assembly has pretty much been emptied out, and that's a good thing. We have some chatter on social media people spiking the football over the budget this is what i got from my district this is what was in the budget we have others that are taking issue with it but for the most part folks aren't yelling directly at each other it's just a lot of social media clatter we did have some news this week in nc poll and as it relates to the general assembly the big news of the week is that medicaid is on par to expand Yes, obviously that was included in the budget and Governor Cooper and Secretary Kinsley had an event this week where they announced it will go live on December 1st. When I said to you, I thought we already knew that, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a press event. So yeah, yeah. So 600,000 North Carolinians plus or minus will start enrolling in Medicaid while we have done away with legislating, at least for the time being. We are now turning the page to another issue, and I don't think it's going to make things better in NC Poll world. This week, they began public redistricting hearings. So on Monday, they were in Elizabeth City and allowed the public to come in and give comments on redistricting. On Tuesday, they were in Hickory on App State's campus there. And then on Wednesday afternoon, they were having a public listening session here in Raleigh. Yeah. So we believe they're going to start with the congressional maps. Yeah. And we heard that Senator Phil Berger, the president pro tem, 
thinks that they could start voting on these new maps the week of October 9th. By the way, next week we have a special podcast in which we're going to talk about the redistricting process. We have a special guest who will be joining us. So we'll get into that more in next week's a special episode. special guest. That's what my grandma calls people's boyfriend and girl. <laughs> it's like you're this guy's special friend. <laughs> yeah. That's what we also say when uh, old folks, when they're referring to someone's gay or lesbian partner, yeah. we say that's their special friend, <laughs> their special roommate. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, while the last two weeks have been marked by a lot of partisan bickering between yes. Republicans and Democrats. Also, we have to point out a lot of infighting between Republicans. Democrats were like, yeah, let's get in on that. Let's do some infighting ourselves. I guess it was sometime last week, the young Democrats had put up this post on Twitter saying, you know, we're going to expose the people that are working to undermine the Democratic Party. I bought, I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> is there a conspiracy here? Like I'm, I'm looking, mm-hmm. I, I'm looking forward to what comes out of this. But then they just name the people that voted for the budget. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Shame on you for getting tens of millions of dollars for your district on a budget that was going to pass with or without you. But we're naming names and fighting words. We'll see you in a primary. It yeah. sounds like it reminds me of a few years back when that born alive abortion bill passed mm-hmm. and there was like firedondavis.com mm-hmm. remember all of that mm-hmm. it's it's kind of similar to that but on sunday representative cecil brockman one of the named people um he voted for the budget he's been on the podcast he fought back sent them or I guess he just posted a letter. Did mm-hmm. he send it to them too? We're all about the letters this week. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't know if he sent it to him directly, but it was an open letter on Twitter. Uh, he told the young Democrats of North Carolina as well. I think the teen Democrats were in on the statement. Maybe the college Democrats. I don't know. But he told them to grow up and that his constituents sent him to Raleigh to work for that district. He, By the way, he represents High Point. And then there was a response from the young Democrats saying, if this is how you want to talk to us, we'll see you on March 5th. Presumably, they're referring to the primary. So, welcome to the party, Democratic Party. Uh, you're in fighting. Republicans are in fighting. Got more of this, I'm sure. That's showbiz, baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We had a couple polls come out this week, uh, including one from our friends over at the John Locke Foundation. One of the things that caught our eye in the John Locke poll was that 85% of voters support term limits in the state legislature, and two-thirds of voters strongly support them. Now, that's term limits for leadership positions, right? For leaders, yes. And, and that tracks with, I believe, what voters feel about term limits in general, even, even though the big irony is, is that, you know, 96% of incumbents win re-election, but folks want term limits. I, I, it's hard to decipher what this means, but certainly the numbers are the numbers. 
Republicans have a 5% edge over Democrats as it pertains to legislative candidates in the House and Senate in the General Assembly. So the generic ballot, what that means is they present to voters, would you be likely to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? So Republicans have a 5% bump on just that generic question. But the generic ballots for Supreme Court and Congress are a little bit smaller. Supreme Court's two. Congress is three. So Republicans going into 2024, at least from a generic branding standpoint, Republican versus Democrat, they seem to have the edge. Speaking of infighting and all of the drama inside the parties, it seems like voters think not that highly of either party. Because the poll showed that Republicans and Democrats are both viewed unfavorably. And those are state party Republicans, Democrats. And that independents are split on Republicans, but view Democrats unfavorably. We also had a Meredith University poll. Seems to indicate that even the most powerful legislators, Speaker Tim Moore, President Pro Tem Phil Berger, they don't really have the name recognition across the state. This poll says that only 15% of voters can identify these top two leaders. Again, two of the most powerful leaders in North Carolina politics. They also said that, uh, most said at least, that they couldn't recognize anyone, that's anyone, currently running for governor. Now, that's going to change over the next year. You're about to see these folks all over your TVs, your computer screens, and your phones. Part of the Meredith poll that I thought was really interesting is that they did a complete section on how voters view men versus women in politics. And they view them the same as far as they make equal political leaders. However, they found women to be more likely to keep government honest, Mm. and they found women more likely to compromise. And I believe that's true. I mean, we're compromising all the time, just hanging out with men. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. I mean, it's not all bad news for guys, right? No. Voters think that men are better at crime and public safety Mm. and economic issues. Oh, we understand numbers. Girl math. (laughs) Boy math. Yeah, I had to explain that to Brian. Yeah, the boy math, girl math debate online, you are that's really fascinating and accurate. Yeah, the boy math, if you're 5'10", you say you're 6 foot. Mm-hmm. Your tape measures just don't work like girls. <laughs> <laughs> girl I'm, math is like, if I return something, I just made 20 bucks back. <laughs> <laughs> I round back now. I used to tell folks I was 5'7". I was like 5'6". And three quarters. So I rounded up, but now I'm rounding back. I want to lower expectations. I want you to think that I'm five, six. I'm going to tell you I'm five, six, but when I come up, you're going to go, he doesn't look that short. Maybe he's five, seven. Is that what people say to you? Wow, you're a lot taller in person. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be accurate. Had some unsubstantiated rumor news. We started spreading this unsubstantiated (laughs) rumor months ago. We think it's substantiated. It popped up again this week. There is a rumor that 
Congressman Jeff Jackson is lining up support for him, some big donors for his run for attorney general. So it appears it will be a race between Congressman Jeff Jackson and Congressman Dan Bishop. We should point out Tom Murray, who we've talked about in the past, he had declared for attorney general. He is now running for the Court of Appeals. So again, Bishop versus Jackson. If you're a TikTok subscriber, you will probably get the news first on TikTok from Congressman Jackson. I have nothing to add. (laughs) The, The guy's a good communicator. Yeah. Great communicator. Unless it's a lie detector test. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. We welcomed back onto the podcast this week, Dr. Chris Cooper from Western Carolina. Last time we talked to him about Western North Carolina and its politics. This time we talked to him about his life and kind of looked into his future for North Carolina politics. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Dr. Chris Cooper, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's not your first time sitting down with us, but it is our first time interviewing you about you. So tell us, what is your job? What is my job? Um, I guess at some level I'm a professor, right? So I do what you would think professors do. I teach some students. They show up. I teach them. Uh, teach undergraduates. I teach graduate students. We have an MPA program at uh, Western, so I teach that. That's Master of Public Affairs. So right, a lot of those folks want to be you know, county managers or city managers or nonprofit directors, but some end up out of our MPA program going into politics. So Lindsey Prather, who's in the General Assembly now, is a is a Western MPA grad. Um, the mayor of Fletcher, North Carolina, a guy named Preston Blakely, folks may have heard of, kind of a rising star in some ways in the West. He's one of our former students. So, uh, so yeah, do a lot of teaching. I do scholarship and research like other wonky academics do. So some of that's in journals that 12 people are going to read. Sometimes that's writing books. Um, And then I spend some time talking to journalists about politics and trying to write for wider audiences, hopefully using words that uh, are understandable and not like heteroscedasticity or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we follow you on social media. We use your information a lot on this podcast. And you weigh in a lot on the NC poll hashtag. Mm-hmm. Talk about that part of your work versus the more scholarly work. Is yeah. there a somewhat of a cross section between the two? Oh yeah, like I, the, to me, the two feed each other perfectly, right? Okay. Like, what's research? But coming up with interesting questions. How do you get interesting questions? You talk to real people, and you kind of live your life paying attention. And so I try to do that. I think there's these are not separate things, right? I'm thinking about politics. I'm thinking about state politics. I'm thinking about elections. I'm thinking about national politics to some degree all day. It's just kind of different forms. So yeah, one informs the other. I'm finishing up this book on North Carolina politics now. If I didn't have journalists asking me smart questions all day, there's no way I would even be able to write that book. If I did pull it off, it wouldn't be as good, frankly, because I think that's how I learn what people are talking about, what people are asking. 
Um, so I'm a political scientist who likes politics. That may seem obvious, but there's actually some political scientists who don't like politics. I think they're weird, but they are out there. That's not me. I, 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 I dig it. So how would you describe your scholarly work as far as in the academic community? Mm-hmm. Poorly read? Is that something? No, I, no, 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 I'm no. just kidding. Um, you know, I, so I do work in state politics. I do work in elections. I do work in Southern politics. I had a book called The Resilience of Southern Identity a few years ago with uh, my buddy Gibbs Knotts at uh, College of Charleston. I have this North Carolina book coming out soon. Years ago, I edited a North Carolina book, uh, again, with Gibbs. I do have done some work over the years on, you know, public opinion of the Confederate flag, Confederate monuments, Um, did a paper a few years ago that some folks were interested in with Michael Bitzer and Susan Roberts and Whitney Ross Manzo about unaffiliated voters right here in North Carolina. So it's a fun way to be able to like there's this lab happening every day. And I think if you pay attention to it, the research ideas just come at you. Do you find that when students enter your class, they know a lot about state politics? Is it hard to get people interested in that? Yeah, they don't tend to know a lot, and I don't find it that hard. Maybe I should, like maybe I'm not paying enough attention, but it seems like they want to learn, and if you just give it to them in a way that's understandable, right, you tell them why you should care, but no, they don't enter the classroom knowing who Tim Moore is or Phil Berger is. You know, heck, I did a poll in the western part of the state a few, eh, maybe two years ago and I asked people who's in charge of the General Assembly, Republicans or Democrats. The majority of people didn't know the answer. There were only two options, right? And the majority of the people didn't know. So, so the students are just like everybody else. They don't know. They pay attention to... Madison Cawthorn's ins and outs, and they're going to pay attention to Tom Tillis to some degree, but they're not going to pay as much attention to Natalie Murdoch or Jim Perry, any member of the North Carolina General Assembly. So you just got to tell them who these people are, tell them why they matter, tell them a story, right? Tell them a story about Brian Turner, you know, living out of a camper when he comes from Buncombe County to Raleigh. Like, that's interesting. That's a Mm -hmm. lot more interesting than they make $13,951 a year, and that's going to have the following institutional effects. Like, who, who cares? Brian lives out of a trailer, and he lives in a pretty nice house the rest of the time? Like, that's interesting. Do you find North Carolina to be the most interesting state to do research in? Because I can tell you, just from our perspective, sure. NC Polk never fails to amaze us. Is it the most interesting? I mean, I'd say, yeah, but I don't I haven't lived in all 50 states, but it is interesting, right? There's no shortage of things to study. There's no shortage of people to pay attention to. I went down earlier today to the press room to take a picture. Can I say FUBAR on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. To take a picture of the FUBAR meter mm-hmm. is the intro to this book, right? I mean, here's a state where the press corps is like, man, this is so messed up. We're going to make a FUBAR meter and we're going to update it whenever we feel like it, right? Like that ain't happening in Wyoming. Why Western Carolina? The beginning is kind of a bad answer. And then I'll hopefully move into a good one. At the beginning, like the academic job market is rough. I applied for 55 academic jobs throughout the country and it was the best one I got. With that said, why have I stayed? I love it. I, I, so in my spare time, I whitewater kayak, a mountain bike. I have a mountain bike trail on campus. Like I pour out of my office and I can ride 10 miles on dirt, come back in my office, hopefully shower before I teach. It's a great life. I live in Silva. I got good access to Asheville with everything that implies, right? Great food, great music, everything else. And uh, people are really nice to me. And they, for the most part, let me do weird stuff like going to Raleigh to be on a podcast in the upstairs of uh, a lobbying firm. (laughs) How long have you been at Western? 
20, this is my 23rd year. Yeah, this is my 20, 22nd year, excuse me. Well, back us up. Tell us how you got from childhood to mm-hmm. Western Carolina as a distinguished professor. Yeah, it, it took a while. Yeah. Uh, so, so I was born in South Carolina. I was born in Greenville, lived in Spartanburg for a while. We then moved to Columbia. My dad's a minister, but he um, went at the United Way. So that, mm-hmm. so he went to the, out of the ministry right before I was born, later got back into it. But so we moved. He was head of United Way of Upstate South Carolina, then head of United Way of South Carolina, which we moved to Columbia, and then we moved to Northern Virginia, um, Washington, D.C. area, because he went to United Way of America. There's a time where I believe Don Vaughn and I went to high school together for a week. Wow, over the so, Interno. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Don Vaughn and the Interno. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to high school very close to where Danielle Battaglia did, mm-hmm. so in Northern Virginia. My parents then got divorced. My dad moved back to South Carolina and went back in the ministry. My mom and stepdad stayed up in Northern Virginia, and so sort of split between the two states. And um, went to undergraduate at Winthrop University, just over the border in South Carolina, and then uh, went to graduate school at University of Tennessee. Peyton Manning had one more year when I got there, and then '98 uh, I was there when we won the national championship. Uh, not that that was the reason I went to graduate school there, but that was totally the reason I went to graduate school there. <laughs> <laughs> then I came to Western in 2002. Growing up, were you that kid who's always interested in politics? Were you following it? Were you involved in any way? Yeah, I mean, I was always following it really closely. Nobody was running for office in my family or anything, mm-hmm. but they talked about politics. You know, you're in the D.C. area, so Tom Daschle's kid is the president of your high school class, right? That's just kind of the way for the young folks. Tom Daschle was a senator. <laughs> <laughs> Senate majority <laughs> leader. Right. Uh, North Dakota, South, South Dakota. Dakota I South believe. Dakota, I believe. I'm not sure North Dakota exists, but that's probably for a different <laughs> podcast. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was always really interested in it and just kind of interested in social sciences in general, right? So it was psychology, sociology, but even in psychology, like the social psychology part of it, I always found more interesting. So yeah, I, I dug it. And when I went to college, I tried like, I don't know, nine majors, and then finally graduated with political science and sociology. Thought I wanted to be a professor. Didn't really understand what that meant in retrospect, but um, it, it worked out great. What's something that you think is really special about Southern politics mm-hmm. or North Carolina politics that maybe the average person doesn't know? Yeah, I mean, for Southern politics, part of it, right, is just how recent the partisan shift is. So, I mean, this was, in the older listeners, uh, the ones who have as much gray hair as I do or more, right? They're going to know this. They're going to go, oh, yeah, I remember the the solid Democratic South. But when people said the solid South, they didn't mean Republicans until fairly recently. And I think, at least my students, that's like a totally different world. Then you tell them, hey, in the late 70s, there were a whole lot of these people running around. They called themselves conservatives and they called themselves Democrats. And then he sure left the state and that was the last one. But right. right, it was a very, very different world. So I think that's part of it for North Carolina. I mean, to me, it's this weird paradox where a state is incredibly competitive, which is what makes in some ways our politics nastier. So if you're in Oklahoma and you're a Republican, you can slow roll this thing. Like you can do it over time. If you're in California and Democrat, like you're going to be in charge for a while. If you're in charge in North Carolina, like, I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. And so that means they act quicker in some ways and sometimes perhaps a little hastier. 
Um, so I think what makes us competitive is also in some ways what makes us a little bit nasty. I'm sure you get this question a lot. We talked about it when we were in Asheville. We get the question all the time. What is North Carolina? Is it red? Is it blue? Is it purple? So I'll give myself away here. The This book that I'm trying to finish up, the title is Anatomy of a Purple State, right? So pretty clear that's going to be my answer. Mm-hmm. But I really do think we are the definition of purple. So one problem I think a lot of people have with politics is they overread winners and losers. And I know that sounds strange, right? And if you're a political consultant, I get it. Like your paycheck is based on winning or losing. But how close you are in terms of telling if it's purple or not or which direction is even more critical. So everybody made this huge deal about Georgia flipping and turning blue, right? There's even a book called Flipped by journalists in Georgia because it flipped, it like, like it's permanent or something. And so I got so many questions from folks saying, why did Georgia flip blue and North Carolina stayed red? And the reality is, of all the states that Trump won, his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any of them. Hmm. Of all the states that Biden win, won, his margin was the smallest in Georgia of any of them. Like, that's the definition of purple, in my mind, is on either side of the middle. So everybody made a huge deal about 2008. North Carolina flipped blue. Well, guess what? Of all the states Obama won, his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any of them. So I think we are very, very much a purple state. And we don't need to talk too much about redistricting, but the fact that we have a 7-7 congressional map, I think, underscores that. Let's talk about the shift we've seen in the parties, particularly the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. You alluded to it Mm -hmm. earlier in this conversation. There seems to be, 20 years ago, the Democratic Party ran as a state party. Mm -hmm. The messaging really had nothing to do with the national party. Mm -hmm. You could see just a huge disconnect between Bill Clinton's campaign and Jim Hunt's gubernatorial Mm -hmm. campaign in 1992. But there seems to have been the shift over the last decade or so. Are you seeing that in your research? Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So we, I mean, we talked about Shuler before him. He's such a great example, right? So Heath Shuler, folks don't know, Member of Congress in the 11th Congressional District. He was a star football player at Tennessee. Went to the Redskins. We won't talk about his football career there. Right. Came back, was a real estate agent, ran for Congress. One was the most conservative member of the Democratic delegation. He was actually more conservative than some Republicans. Right. He's since moved out of the state. And I was looking through campaign finance reports. And I noticed he gave money to Chuck Edwards, wow. right? A Republican. So a Democratic former member of Congress gave money to a Republican current member of Congress. And so I put that on Twitter and people started popping at me. Well, that's just the old school dim. And he was never really a dim in the first place. And to me, that was the perfect illustration of what we're talking about, like how much this has shifted. And it's certainly shifted in both parties. It's not like the Republicans are you know, drinking free bubble up and eating the rainbow stew and holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Like there's some, there's some fighting in both parties. Yeah. I mean, going back to Mark Baznight, he was self-described as Mm pro-life. He hinted that he had voted for Jesse Helms for Mm -hmm. U.S. Senate and would not step foot in a union hall in North Carolina. That's right. Both parties are moving to the polls. They're moving to the extremes. He used to have people who would cross over. Not a lot, but you'd, you'd get your Heath Schulers, right? And you'd get your folks on the Republican side too working with the Dems. And if you sort of look at graphs of this stuff, you can just imagine it's like two mountains that used to overlap and then they just move farther and farther away. And they used to be really wide and flat like the Appalachian Mountains. And now it's like 
two peaks in the Rockies or something just miles and miles from each other. And when they are moderate, they get nailed. I mean, let's look at Tom Tillis, right? I mean, here's somebody who has made a little bit of a career in D.C. being that rare person who can work between the parties. And so what's his reward for that? He gets censured by his own party Mm -hmm. right here in North Carolina. So I think both parties want people in a certain mold more and more. Our listeners are going to want to know your opinion of this. And let me preface it with what we talk about just kind of around the water cooler at a bar or something like this Mm -hmm. is what lobbyist legislators will say. It's the rise of the cost of running for a seat, Mm -hmm. your dependence now on special interest groups to help fund that effort. Mm -hmm. It's social media 24 seven, always on, always knowing how you're voting, what you're saying on the floor. And it is the rise of just how prevalent national politics are now. It's in our psyche, it seems, every day. What's your thoughts about what's causing this polarization among our electeds? Can I just say yes and do a mic drop? Okay. I think oh, it's yeah. all of that, right? Okay. I mean, I really do. And I think that nationalization piece you talked about is so key. I mean, you know, I got a mailbox like everybody else. I get flyers too. And the flyers that I get have got somebody positioned with, you know, next to Donald Trump. Somebody's never going to meet Donald Trump a day in his life or positioned right next to Joe Biden, right? on some sort of negative ad. Like the Democrat running for NC 119 probably isn't really hanging out with Joe Biden a lot. But if you're <laughs> Republican running against him, that's the ad you you're running, right? So consultants, I get it. They need to win elections. And so they are going to take advantage of the fact that we don't know much about state politics and we don't really know what they do. And so they're going to position them as part of this national brand. And let's be honest, neither national brand is real positive at the moment. So I think it's the way the rules of the game are structured, the way people's incentives are structured. And again, the consultant class needs to win elections. They need to win elections right now to put food on their table. They're not thinking about what looks good for even their own party 20 years from now. Can we dive into one of those topics a little more? You've been teaching for 22 years. Can you talk about social media and how that's impacted our politics and maybe the rise of the unaffiliated voter? Yeah, I think social media is both a cause and an effect of this polarization, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that... If you just snapped your fingers and said, let's take away social media, I still think we're polarized to similar degrees. But man, is it obvious now. And I think what it's done is it's polarized information. So the promise of all the social media is that it's going to even the playing field and that anybody can, you know, articulate a position. And certainly that part of it, like we talked about me getting on Twitter and doing stuff, that's to some degree, that's what I'm trying to do, right? Like is just say, hey, here's some information about state politics and I'm able to get in. I used to write a lot of op-eds for newspapers. I don't have to do that quite as much now, right? So it, it can be positive, but the reality is the vast, vast, vast majority of people just want to get their positions reinforced. And it's such an easy way to do it. Again, with the Twitter thing, like I rarely put anything overtly partisan to one side or the other. Some people say don't punch down. I try to just not punch. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I got like, I don't know, 6,000 people following me. I think if I got on there every day and railed about either party, I might have 20,000 people. Right. So I think it's just, it's feeding this appetite we have. And it's just easier and easier and easier to build these tight, tight, tight networks. And then you add to that the geographic polarization, right? Like I might've said this the last time we were together, but 
I told my students I'd give them extra credit if they could find me a Republican in West Asheville and nobody's ever gotten extra credit, right? <laughs> like it's just, we're increasingly in the same neighborhoods. The beer you drink or don't drink mm-hmm. is increasing. I mean, look what happened with Bud Light, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you choose to go to Disney or not, I mean, the degree to which polarization has impacted every part of our life, I think is a cause. I think social media is a cause and an effect of it. And the unaffiliated piece so there was a study pretty recently about um, dating. So you go, I luckily got married before the big rise of, of dating apps. So I didn't have to live in that world. But like, turns out people really don't want to date somebody who is overtly partisan in any way. And so calling yourself, it is certainly not cross-partisan. So calling yourself an unaffiliated, I mean, it's a way to open up a dating pool. And I'm okay. actually being serious when I say that. And there are structural reasons for that that are wonky and boring, but just very, very, very briefly on the unaffiliated piece, right? We used to have closed primaries where if you're unaffiliated, you were essentially disenfranchising your own vote in the primaries. And so the Republicans who at the time were getting killed in terms of voter registration, they're pretty smart. And they said, hey, what if we let these unaffiliated folks in? Democrats are riding high on the hog. And they're like, forget it. Don't come into my party. We don't want you to water our brand down. It took the Democrats eight years to realize that they were blowing it. That's when we opened up the primaries completely for unaffiliated voters. And then it's off to the races. And I think y'all talked about the tweet I'd put up the other week about if you're under 40, unaffiliated is the largest group of registered voters in the state. And if you are over 40, it's the smallest group. Yeah. If you're out of state, biggest, in-state, smallest and we all know where the trends are going right north carolina is getting more in migrants and unfortunately for all of us life has an end and so we know how the demographics are going to go so there's a debate in town we've heard you know stephen wiley over Mm -hmm. at the republican caucus he says ah unaffiliated that the rise of unaffiliated's not a big deal Mm -hmm. because they're picking a party and they're sticking to that brand. So you mm-hmm. might be an unaffiliated voter, but you're voting Republican. Chances are you're going to stay Republican mm-hmm. in the general election. Then we see the rise of the No Labels Party recently, just got approved by the State Board of Election. And we've pointed out on the podcast that cards are kind of stacked against those guys with the Electoral College. But I'm kind of asking you to look into your crystal ball here. It seems unsustainable to keep growing every week. And I'm giving you kind of some recent data. It seems to be pretty consistent week after week. 3,000 new voters this week are unaffiliated. You get a couple hundred Republicans added on. You get a couple hundred Democrats. That seems unsustainable Mm -hmm. over time. Yeah, I don't think it's unsustainable. I think it may be more problematic. So first of all, I think from Stephen Wiley's position, he's exactly right. Like, he doesn't care how people register to vote. He needs to win elections. He needs to win the campaign. And I get that. Like, that's his job. And he's very, very, very good at it, right? As we sit here with the supermajority Republican control. So a couple of things. One, people move back and forth between primaries more than you might think. So about 46% of unaffiliated voters, so just slightly less than half, actually do switch primaries. Now, they may do it to hurt somebody like they did in the 11th with Madison Cawthorn, right. but they definitely do that. And so I think of them, my sort of maybe lame analogy I use is they're unmoored voters, right? So if you can think about a boat that's just not moored or tied to the dock, and if there's no storm, it's fine. It's going to hang out there. But you get a massive storm, and it's going to be across the lake. 
And I think the same thing can happen here. And then if I put this, you know, forward 20 years from now, the other issue we're going to have, remember, parties do more than just have voters today. We need to have candidates. We already have a hard time getting candidates. Well, you have to be a member of one of the two major parties to win. And that is an uncomfortable fact and a fact. Three folks in Transylvania County flipped from Republican to unaffiliated. What was their award? Booted out of office, right? So we're going to end up with these really hollow parties where the people who are control who showing up to party meetings, running for office, doing all the things, that, contacting people, all the things that parties do is going to be a smaller and smaller and older and older group of people. And so for anybody who's concerned about youth turnout or getting young people to run for office, like this is a disaster waiting to happen. I don't know who's going to run for office. And if you're concerned about democratizing parties, like, man, it's going to be really hard. And I don't know who 20 years from now is going to be precinct chair for the Republican or Democratic Party in any corner of the state. And it's going to be some real elite people who are highly polarized and highly engaged. And so I think the parties, not the campaign strategists, but the parties themselves need to figure out how to communicate a benefit of party registration or else we're going to be in a very, very different situation soon. It's been a while since I've been in a political science classroom, but political parties as we know them today aren't exactly how we started this republic, right? I mean, they do become obsolete and new parties Mm -hmm. emerge, or at least new coalitions emerge and become something else. Mm -hmm. You can't take for granted that 20 years from now, we will have the Republican Party and Democratic Party as we know it now, or at least 50 years from now. Yeah, we have party eras. You're right. So you you talk so much, Brian, like a guy who took Chuck Prisby's class at UNCG. I did take Dr. Prisby's class. That's exactly right. right. Chuck Prisby, if you're out there listening, hey, (laughs) recently retired, good guy. Um, So you're right. Of course, we could have another party era. I don't see it happening with a new party. Um, Sorry, no labels, folks. I agree we're going to get a new era, but I think that's the conversation when, when Sky was talking about sort of Southern politics and what's changed. I mean, in my mind, that's the new party era, right? Where the conservative Democrat is dead. So we have this perfect alignment now where if you're a liberal, you're a Democrat. If you're a conservative, you're a Republican. I don't see that breaking anytime soon. There's a lot of patterns that will change. That one I think we're going to hold on to for a while. Why? Because the two major parties don't agree on much, but they definitely agree that they should be the two major parties. (laughs) (laughs) True. What's something you're watching for in 2024 that maybe isn't on the top of other people's minds? So I'll tweak just slightly your question. Say one thing I'm looking for in 2023, right? Where we're having elections in 92 counties, I think it is, Mm -hmm. across the state of North Carolina, is um, voter ID. Everybody's talking like voter ID doesn't happen until 2024. Like there's an experiment happening right now. Started in Samford yesterday, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly one thing I'm watching. Um, Another thing for 2024 is how many seats get contested. A few Mm -hmm. years ago, about half, I think it was 46% of state legislative seats, General Assembly seats in North Carolina didn't have two candidates running, right? So you could predict with 100% accuracy who would win before a single vote was cast. Both parties have done a better job. The Republicans better than the Democrats, but both have improved. But I'm really interested to see whether both parties can field candidates. Like how many of the 170 seats up 
are going to actually be filled. I think that's a key one. Everybody's already watching redistricting, but certainly I'm going to be watching that too to see exactly what these maps look like. In terms of the General Assembly, what I'm continue to watch that I wish people would pay more attention to are local bills. Mm. Um, so local bills, of course, as the wonky people who listen to this podcast know, uh, do not go to the governor's desk for veto. Most bills do. Redistricting doesn't. Local bills don't. Constitutional amendments. And so what a great way to get policy through without ever having to even get close to the governor's desk. And even when members of the General Assembly talk about bills that got passed, I notice sometimes local bills just get ignored. Sometimes it's because they're super wonky, like putting a 7-Eleven back in some town versus, you know, out of town. But man, sometimes they matter. And so I, I keep trying to watch those local bills and how those are going to affect elections. So we've had a series of these that have moved local elections from nonpartisan to partisan affairs. Presumably that's going to be good for the Republican Party, I think mm -hmm. is the pitch. And so I want to see if that's true. So you asked for one and I gave you like 12 and I changed yeah. the years and I'm very yeah. bad at this job. <laughs> no, you're good. To turn back to you this year, you've experienced a deep tragedy in your mm -hmm. family. Can you talk about how that's impacted you? Sure. Yeah. So my brother, um, so there's just two of us. We've got some step brothers who are great uh, and a stepsister is great. But my brother and I grew up together. We were the only two in the house and um, he passed away December this last year. So he was a, had been a music journalist for a while. He's also a songwriter, a producer, sort of like, you know, he did about everything you could possibly do in the music industry. So he, he wrote books, he made records, he produced people. Um, he did all of that stuff and he was really, really good at it. He was kind of the voice of, uh, as he would say, unpopular country music uh, for, for years. And he worked at the Country Music Hall of Fame when he passed away. And so he was 52 when he died. Um, so yeah, it was pretty... Uh, it's my mom died one year before her, almost to the day. So it's been a rough couple of years in that mm -hmm. way. Um, but we were, we were lucky. We had a, a beautiful ceremony for him. The, um, he, after he died, we decided to put on a concert. And Emmylou Harris played and Buddy Miller played. And uh, it was just Jim Lauderdale, a bunch of, you know, kind of, popular people in the unpopular music scene. Don Schlitz, who's from North Carolina and famously wrote the song The Gambler that some people have heard of. Mm. Uh, he was there. And so it was, we, they played about 15 songs. I said some forgettable words, mm. and uh, but it was a pretty cool kind of healing moment. Your brother's name was Peter? Peter Cooper, yes. Peter Cooper. I heard your podcast interview with our friend Tim Boyum mm -hmm. over at the Tying It Together podcast. And uh, it sent me down a little rabbit hole. I, you had mentioned some of your brother's writings. Mm -hmm. I mean, you say that he wrote about unpopular music, mm -hmm. but he, I mean, he rubbed elbows with some of the yeah. greats of country music, including Johnny Cash and yeah. wrote his obituary. Yeah, he wrote Cash's obituary. He wrote the, the one he was proud of for good reason is he wrote George Jones's tombstone. So after George Jones died, his, uh, his family said, Hey, we don't quite know what to put on the tombstone. Peter, will you please write the tombstone? So when you go to, if you go to see George Jones's tombstone, it's Peter Cooper's words on there. He gave us a great story about cash where he'd said first time he ever met cash. Finally cash said, Hey, he's Peter was writing for the paper at that point. Peter said, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Cash. You know, I love your music. And he said, well, son, 
I read every word you say. Peter said he thought like felt really good for a second, and then he thought, oh man, some of those words ain't so good. Like some of those days, I don't feel real good. And Johnny Cash is reading them. But Jay, he sent me a picture one night. It was him and John Prine and Bill Murray sitting around over wow. over drinks. Um, he called me one day. Said, "What'd you do for lunch today?" I said, "I'd lunch with my buddy Justin." What'd you do? He said, "I had lunch with Keith Richards. It was all right." <laughs> Dang it, man! <laughs> so he was a he was a, a a fun guy to have in my life, and a musician to mm-hmm. boot, right? Yeah, that's right. He recorded probably eight albums. Um, so yeah, Peter Cooper uh, he was a great songwriter. Big buddies, a guy named uh, Tom T. Hall. So some folks know. I know Bob Orr. If Bob listens to this, Bob is a big Tom T. Hall fan. But mm-hmm. Peter was good friends with uh, with Tom T. And yeah, recorded. Some albums on his own, some with his buddy Eric Brace, some with uh, the guy I mentioned before, Tom Utes, and recorded a sort of a covers album at Tom T. Hall's house with Tom T. and some folks. So, yeah, some of it was popular music, too. (laughs) He was based out of Nashville. Yes. Do you have a connection beyond your brother to country music? Just interest. And then I... You know, it's one kind of cool thing that happens if you have a brother or sister or friend do something fun and interesting is that they bring you along for the ride sometimes. So always been really a big music nerd. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I still get to go to Nashville and hang out with really interesting people that he was close to. So, yeah, it's a kind of a cool gift and it's a weird deal. My mom died and I I hate it because I can't hear her voice very much. Mm. But with my brother, like I'm driving home tomorrow, I can put on a CD and hear his voice. And that's kind of a cool thing right or i can pick up a book and read a passage i don't know that's kind of a gift that i don't think i thought through until he passed away yeah it's how it is sometimes yeah. uh <laughs> if you had a magic wand and you could change something in our politics today what would it be yeah, so, yeah i thought about a few others that other people have mentioned and then today i went on a run and uh it hit me um so when i when i run the freedom park in raleigh opened up uh what two days ago mm-hmm. as we're recording this yeah Yesterday. Yesterday, okay. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went on a run and stopped and walked through there, and, and you're sort of taken, obviously, with the moment and what that means. And then I was trying to rectify that in my own head with the fact that the literacy test, which was created to exclude African Americans from voting, is still in our state constitution. Mm-hmm. And it is unenforceable, um, but it is still there. And I think if I had a magic wand, I would delete it. Uh, I think I would go in there with some track changes and get rid of it. And I think unlike most of my other magic wand answers, I think this one can happen. Um, And there's been a movement. There's been discussion. I know uh, uh, Senator Berger said he was amenable to this idea. Lots of folks on both sides of the aisle. I mean, it's an issue where you have the John Locke Foundation and all the Democrats going, yeah, we should totally do this. Right. So I think it's a it's a realistic magic wand, and it's one that I, I hope the state will take up and actually take seriously. I think about it when kids read our Constitution. I'm assuming that kids do read the North Carolina Constitution. When they take my class, they have to, or else <laughs> yeah. I fail them. And I think about <laughs> how they must process that, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah, it can't be good for a kid to see that that's how their state thought of them. No, and and I think a message can be that that's how their state continues to think of them, right? I mean, it's just going to take some political will. It's going to take some education, but I do think it it can happen. And it's not going to 
magically cure racial animus in the United States or in the state of North Carolina. I'm under no illusion, but I do think symbols matter. And I think this is one like everybody agrees, like find me somebody who says, yeah, I think that thing should still be there. Like 170 members of that chamber. I don't know that you're going to find anybody who agrees. So like, let's do it. Well, Dr. Chris Cooper, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Let me start off by saying I received a wonderful education at UNC Greensboro. I was a political science major, stayed for graduate school, and the program really prepared me for my profession. However, getting out of college and graduate school, I'm working in North Carolina politics, I realized that I wasn't exposed to some of the real world aspects of NC Paul, the power of relationships, the power of personalities. A lot of it was because my professors were so academic and scholarly, and we received the foundations of political science, kind of the ABCs, blocking and tackling committees and all of this. Dr. Cooper is a different kind of professor. Not only does he have the academic and scholarly background, the books that he's published, the articles that he's published. But this guy gets in the middle of NC Paul. We can see him almost daily on Twitter. We see him quoted in the media. And he's not just giving that theoretical, you know, this is what's happening happening in politics. He's interested in the FUBAR meter. He's interested in the in the race for speaker. And he has insightful commentary that he provides us that helps give us perspective. We think this conversation gives you a lot of perspective about how NC Poll works. Thank you, Dr. Cooper, for sharing your insights with us. Tweet, Tweet of, of the week. week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week first came to us in an email, but is also on Twitter, and it is from Rusty Ma. He's at Rusty underscore Ma, and he works for Guilford County Government. His tweet says, exiting my Twitter hiatus three years to share a hot topic for debate. Allegedly, Kit Kat, Crunch Bar, and Twix are not candy, per the Department of Revenue here in North Carolina. Here's why. And so basically, I had read this and then I'd clicked some of the links he'd sent us about what is and is not candy per the Department of Revenue and really gave me a lesson. But here, items not listed as candy. And I should tell you, it does say on the NCDOR website, this is not an exclusive list. Fritos, honey, barbecue flavor twists. Why did they need to call them out like that? (laughs) 
pixie sticks, which are like flavored sugar. I'm hung up on Kit Kat not being a candy. That right. is actually my favorite candy. Twix bar, Nestle Crunch, not candy. Now, DOR is classifying these because candy is taxed at a different rate than food, correct? Yes. And it's because those candies contain flour, and they're deeming that if you have flour in it, you are not a candy. That sounds like something a lobbyist would tell DOR. Kit Kat is really bread because it has flour in it. It's interesting. Now, on the other side, items classified that are candy. There's some weird ones in this too. Also, not an inclusive list. Beer nuts party mix. <laughs> Caramel corn rice cakes that do not have ingredient labels specifying flour and do not require refrigeration. However, in the not candy is lightly salted rice cakes. Like as if anybody <laughs> has ever had a lightly salted rice cake and thought, hmm, candy, what a little treat. Thanks, Grandma, for dessert. <laughs> anybody who's ever been on a diet and they've been like, when you're hungry, just eat a rice cake has yeah. been like, ooh, I think I'll have a rice cake as a little dessert. <laughs> Can't get enough of them. Also, a candy, Cracker Jacks marshmallows, popped caramel and kettle corn. Yeah, what's your opinion on all of this? I'll tell you what's not candy. This happened when my sister and I were growing up. My sister, like me, likes candy and sweets, chewing gum, the whole thing. My mother kept a laxative chewing gum in the bathroom. It was, I think it was called Phenomint. A laxative chewing gum? Yeah, you just, you could chew gum, pop bubbles, and then, uh, you know, about a half hour later, things would start to move. Okay. Yeah. So my sister got into the laxative chewing gum before we were heading off to church. It was a scene at church. Was we're, it like the Delta flight? <laughs> Yeah, it was like a Stephen King movie. We're in the church. Uh, of course, this is something you kids always say at church. Mom, I got to go to the bathroom. You sit down, shut up, be quiet, listen to the preacher. And uh, well, let's just say there was an emergency at church. Oh, no. Yeah. How old was she? She was probably about seven or eight years old. Ugh. Yeah, it was bad. We still talk about it, have fun with it. Now, it was not fun that particular day. Was that funnier? Or was it funnier when you crapped yourself in front of your girlfriend? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. It wasn't a phenomen story, but, you know, I'm a guy, I'm in college, I like to maybe pass some gas and then yeah. and then farts are funny for guys yeah yeah farts are funny for guys and you know i did the whole pistol thing like so when you let out the wind you you point and it makes it sound like a gun's going off right <laughs> <laughs> clever as all get out oh i'm so clever and uh my girlfriend she looked at me and i noticed she was pointing to the ground <laughs> And I looked down, and so this is 1994, so guys, we used to wear the baggy shorts, you know, the basketball shorts, so I had on my baggy basketball shorts, and I looked down, and uh, a gift had come out. <laughs> <laughs> so we broke up. <laughs> um, 
30 years later, we have reconnected on Facebook. She's never brought up the incident. Uh, I don't bring up the incident. She's only brought it up to every single person <laughs> she's ever interacted with in her life. Well, you just brought and it. And she reconnected with you on Facebook so she could point to you when she was telling the story. I hate to break it to you, but I know women. Oh, well, we just announced it on a podcast, so <laughs> things happen. You know, we make mistakes, and yeah. uh, I don't do the gun pointing, letting out air anymore. I've, I've learned my lesson. Things- <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> You've really matured. <laughs> yeah, I'm a mature guy. What's your favorite candy, though? I thought about this long and hard. When I was a kid, I loved Butterfingers. Oh, yeah. Remember when they had Butterfinger BBs? No, but they were like they were like little circles of Butterfinger. Oh my gosh, they were the best. That, that sounds good because you know what I like to do is break up a Butterfinger candy bar, put it in a bowl, put milk in it, and <laughs> eat it like cereal. If I had BBs, that would make it much more efficient. <laughs> well, you could get Reese's Puffs. I do. That, that was my favorite cereal. Oh, forget it. No, 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 no. The Reese's Puff cereal. The there's a Kit Kat cereal now. That's trash. Just get real Kit Kats. By the way, you'll come out cheaper getting real it Kit Kats. It seems way less healthy. <laughs> well, I don't think choosing between <laughs> Reese's cereal and Reese's cups. I mean, come on. At some point, you're already in on unhealthy eating. So you might as well just go ahead and eat the real stuff. And do you know how much a box of like Fruit Loops cost because that's my favorite. I have no idea. Dessert. I don't buy cereal. It's like nine dollars. It is eight ninety nine for a family size box of Fruit Loops. That is insane. I want to bring up here that on this list of what is candy is Rice Krispie treats. I never thought of Rice Krispie treat as candy, just as a dessert. But they included marshmallows, so I guess that's part of it. Such an interesting list. Thanks for sending that to yeah. us. That Which was... we will we'll include like a little poll maybe on social media about what is or is not a candy. What's your favorite candy? As you know, Halloween comes around and then Christmas parades. You know, you get all that filler candy as a kid. You're like, what is this? Oh, crap candy. Yeah. Someone handed us the <laughs> other day. We're at the General Assembly late at night. It was yeah. late Thursday night going into Friday morning. Someone handed us a strawberry. Yeah. Everybody, you close your eyes. You know what we're talking about? Those little candies that look like a strawberry in the wrapper. Uh-huh. It disgusting. Has, disgusting. It has nothing to do with strawberries. It's just like it's the mark of being old <laughs> yeah you go over to your aunt ellen's house she's like i've got some candy over there in that <laughs> and it's like jar. it's like a little seashell <laughs> four words originals in it right 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 and you're dying for some m&ms but grandma wants to give you jordan almonds yeah and they break your teeth that's why old people don't have teeth because <laughs> they eat all that hard candy yeah, they love hard candy. They love hard candy. <laughs> What's your favorite candy? It would definitely be Kit Kat. I love oh, a Kit Kat. Okay. I'll throw in the Twix bar. Okay. Butterfinger. Definitely. Reese's Cups. Reese's Cups. I love it all. Just a plain Hershey bar. I'm fine with that. Love it. I love cereal. Cereal is my dessert. We get cereal in the house. We'll have a bowl of cereal after we eat dinner. I just love sweets. Well, cereal's my candy. I know, but it's my candy. It's my guilty pleasure. It's your pleasure. middle of the night food, too, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it's my, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. But you're not doing that anymore. No. Captain Ozempic. That's right. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah, you're looking skinny. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. <laughs> I was looking at you and I was like, you're a lot taller in person. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's time to wrap this. You're, you're so it? tall and skinny. Oh, you must be a model. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. Well, let's take this thing out of here. All right. We will talk to you all next week about redistricting, a special episode just about redistricting. Until then, enjoy this nice fall weather. Maybe if you're in Raleigh, the Bluegrass Festival this weekend, have some fun and remember to do politics better.